0: Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Every eye sees its own special vision. Every ear hears a most different song. And each man's troubled heart and incision would reveal a unique and shameful wrong. Stranger fiends hide here in human guise than reside in the valleys of hell. But goodness, kindness, and love arise in the heart of the poor beasts as well. Dean Coons, The Bad Place. I've been repeating that poem in my mind since I read it almost 20 years ago. I'm not 100% sure why, maybe because it sounds cool, maybe because I wanted to see if my brain could still memorize things after blitzing it with drugs in my teens, but as I get older, I think the reason is because I knew it held an important meaning. What you see is certainly not always what you'll get if you stick around someone long enough. There is no pure evil or pure good in people. There are streaks within us, like marbling and meat, that may never be exposed, even to ourselves unless the right combination of factors fall into place. From the homeless woman who jumps into a subway pit to rescue a dummy who follows the glow of their smartphone over the yellow line, to the proper politician who finds himself alone with a child and discovers a dark desire. Most of us don't know our base selves until tested. We can claim what we do in this situation or that, but it doesn't mean shit until we face crisis, temptation, strain. We really don't know who we truly are. It's been my experience that most of us are just waiting for this whole life thing to blow over. We don't want any trouble. We don't want to feel any pain. I've learned that a smile doesn't necessarily represent friendliness, and that a scowl can be indicative of deep sadness. I know that we all wear masks, that we put on an act to slide by the others. We don't want to have to explain ourselves. We just want to be accepted by the whole and feel loved by a few. I also know that sometimes... A person comes along who will never be satisfied Because no matter how many eggs they break An omelette Just doesn't do it for them Their dish Must come from off the menu Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host Jack Luna This is S2E10 Sinning Mary Beth Tinning Mary Beth Tinning was born on September 11, 1942, to parents Alton and Ruth Rowe in the small village of Dwaynesburg, just outside of Schenectady, New York. From as early as Mary Beth could remember, she felt unwelcome, unwanted. This insight stems from what would later be sporadic accounts divulged by Mary Beth to acquaintances through life of abuses she suffered at the arthritic hands of her father. I say sporadic as most of Mary Beth's lifelong accusations of unfair treatment from others were vehement and constant, even when obviously fabricated. It seems to me that Mary did indeed suffer mistreatment early in life, but was later hesitant to confirm her rare admissions of said abuse due to her desire to gain her father's favor, even after he had died unexpectedly of a heart attack at the age of 54. Mary Beth spent much of her childhood sequestered away in her family's small home that sat atop a hill on the outskirts of town, She was never involved in any extracurricular activities, and it seems she simply waited her after-school hours out in her bedroom, often not by choice. She was locked in her room and, on occasion, a closet by her father, who would beat her with a fly swatter when she misbehaved. Mary Beth believed he used the swatter because his hands ailed him, but I feel it to be an odd choice of instrument, one that might hurt with the right whip, but maybe was more symbolic than anything else. Mary Beth, to her father, was a pest. The Rowe family's second and final child was a clear favorite even before he soiled his first diaper. He was named after his father Alton, and as he grew became known even more affectionately as Buddy. Mary Beth, on the other hand, was starved for attention. She was prone to outbursts, happy to settle for negative attention, unable to even fake the behavior necessary to garner praise from her father. Her mother's attention never seemed to be of much consequence, and the truth is that there is not much to be said of Mary Beth's childhood that can be substantiated other than the fact that she was at times locked in her room for misbehaving once allegedly for an entire day while the rest of the family went on an excursion the flyswatter was always hovering but it's believed that the abuses went much further than this though they can't be proven as like i've said mary beth was mum about her real feelings and forever controlled about what she allowed people to know of her so much so that she often used lies to mold her image to others those who tried to recall mary beth later in life after she became infamous had nothing of substance to say about the temperamental, plain girl from the hill. They could remember only that she'd been annoying and not well received by classmates, leading to her becoming a non-factor in the memories of her peers. She stayed to herself. After school, she boarded the bus then quietly exited once to her stop. No goodbyes or see you tomorrows, following her out. One student, who had later become a police officer, remembered vividly seeing the Father Alton standing on the porch from time to time when Mary was walking out to meet the bus. He stood with arms crossed and a scowl on his face. It seemed he wasn't there to see his daughter off. Rather, the vibe was more like he was kicking her out and wanted to ensure she was leaving the property. Not a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings around young Mary Beth's early memories, needless to say. Mary Beth became a bus monitor on a route for younger grades. She used this position of authority to maybe vent some of the feelings of powerlessness that she harbored. The younger kids detested Mary Beth. She was quick to yell and never had a smile on her face. She was mean and seemed to enjoy making the younger students uncomfortable. High school came and went. A mediocre student, Mary Beth never showed much interest in anything, and was never part of a group of friends. She coasted through school, virtually unnoticed. There was a rare occasion where she stood out. She was prone to weaving fantastic stories that always portrayed her as a heroine or an important figure. Whenever someone did try to converse with her, they quickly regretted it. Besides her reputation as a blowhard, she was also prone to angry outbursts these usually coming in reaction to something trivial. In the yearbook from her graduating year, the exiting class was asked to describe their fellow students with one word. The word under Mary Beth's photo? Temper. After school, Mary took up work as a nurse's aide in the pediatric ward of nearby Ellis Hospital and, by all accounts, was a competent care worker. Investigators would later look closely at patient records from Mary Beth's time of employment and were relieved not to find a spike in deaths or any suspicious happenings. At some point before her 20th year, Marybeth became pregnant. Her family pushed for her to abort the child, a procedure that was illegal in New York State at the time, but they found a way to get it done. Marybeth came from a devoutly Catholic family, so this was a little unusual. It's thought that the major issue of the pregnancy was regarding who the father was. I've read speculation of it being someone of rank in the church, which Marybeth herself later alluded to. I've even read that her own father may have been the culprit, though there is zero proof to substantiate any of this gossip. Regardless, it's said that the procedure deeply affected Mary Beth. She considered herself a murderer because of it. In 1963 and at the age of 21, Joe Tinning entered Mary Beth's life. They met on a blind date, and though Mary Beth wasn't initially attracted to the vanilla look and personality of Joe, she soon warmed up to him. As he had a good job at General Electric, the same company her father worked for, and seemed content in allowing Mary Beth to run the show, it wasn't long before they were married. And a couple of years later, at the age of 23, Mary Beth became pregnant. Barbara Tinning, Joe and Mary Beth's first child together, was born on May 31, 1967. Three years later, on January the 10th of 1970. They welcomed their first son to the world, Joe Jr., and for a while, all seemed to be well in the world of Mary Beth. Joe had become a foreman at General Electric and was bringing in good money. They continued to rent, however, as Mary Beth had a habit of spending up Joe's earnings on clothing and unnecessary gifts for family and friends. Neighbors of the young family often overheard shouting matches between the couple which always tapered off when Mary Beth turned on the waterworks, a technique Joe's mother-in-law had warned him about when he first wed Mary Beth, but he failed to nip it in the bud and the trend of their bank account draining before the next payday continued throughout their marriage, causing them to never really get ahead. The children were well cared for, however, and nothing of any note really took place until Mary Beth was seven months pregnant with her third child. This is when Mary Beth's father suffered a heart attack while at work and later died in hospital when he was overtaken by another. Before he passed, Alton Sr. called his son close and asked him if he would name his first son after them, continuing the line of Alton Rose. Mary Beth overheard this and was devastated, as she was currently pregnant and did not yet know the sex of her child. She felt rejected yet again by the father who she had always chased for affection. When they had a chance to speak before he died, Alton Sr. showed no love for his daughter. He gave her no advice or words of love. Then he passed away. Her father's death sent Mary Beth into a deep depression. With her baby due in a couple of months, this was no time for her to fall apart. But by all accounts, that's what she did. Her baby, Jennifer, was born the day after Christmas, 1971. Jennifer was not well. It was found that she had meningitis, as well as abscesses on her brain and spine. Mary Beth later described her third child as having been born, quote, full of cancer. Jennifer survived just over a week, but died in hospital. Nurses later recalled that Mary Beth had seemed mentally disturbed in the days leading up to Jennifer's death. When Mary Beth was asked if she wanted to hold her recently deceased child, she nodded her head, took the baby in her arms, and made her way to a hospital bed where she pulled a sheet over her face and lay with Jennifer for quite some time. A disturbing scene that the nurses on duty that day later recalled vividly, though who's to say what a proper reaction is in such a circumstance? The death of Mary Beth's father had put her into a strange frame of mind. Many recall Mary stating that a Christmas day birth was a certainty, as she believed the soul of her father would enter her third child on that holiest of days. Later, many health practitioners looking back on Jennifer's death couldn't help but hypothesize that Mary Beth may have induced labor to provoke a Christmas birth by breaking her own water with something, and that whatever she used may have introduced bacteria to the womb, resulting in meningitis that eventually killed baby Jennifer. Seventeen days after this tragedy, Mary Beth rushes into the same hospital she'd so recently lost her baby in, carrying her second child, Joe Jr., who had apparently had a seizure and choked in his own vomit. Doctors are able to save young Joey, who had just celebrated his second birthday. They keep him under observation for a couple of days before sending him back home, with his hand wringing and ever present mother who dotes on her child through the observation period as any concerned mother naturally would. Only a few hours after Joey is sent home, Mary Beth returns. Bursting through the emergency room doors, screaming for help. She's holding young Joey in her arms. Joe is clearly dead. There's nothing doctors can do for the child. Mary Beth claims to have put the boy down for a nap, and when she checked on him after a while, had found the boy wrapped up in his sheet, blue from oxygen deprivation. Mary Beth is consoled by nursing staff. It's hard to believe that this woman has lost two children in just over two weeks. There's an outpouring of support from the community. Joey's death is suspected to be as a result of rays a syndrome that was only recently coming to be understood. The official cause of death is listed as cardiorespiratory arrest. No autopsy is conducted. Another funeral for a small child commences. Mary Beth stands stoically by the open casket and accepts condolences from friends, family, and those wanting to pay their respects. Joe Tinning takes his place beside his wife. He's mute, maybe from the shock of losing two children in such quick succession, but mainly because that was Joe's way. He came from a strict religious family who believed all would be revealed in the afterlife, so no use in questioning or feeling too hard the trials of life. Six weeks later, their first and only remaining child, who was three months shy of her fifth birthday, allegedly tells her mother that she will soon be with her younger brother in heaven before heading off to bed. Barbara is the next tinning child to be rushed into the emergency room of Ellis Hospital to the absolute disbelief of staff. Marybeth claims to have discovered the normally healthy and vibrant young girl breathing recklessly and in the midst of convulsions. Doctors, of which I should mention have been different each time Marybeth brought a child in, a trend that will continue throughout this unbelievable true crime tale, are able to stabilize Barbara and suggest that she stay the night for observation. Marybeth overrides the suggestion and takes her little girl home. Just as with Joe Jr., Mary returns hours later, carrying Barbara who is unconscious. Medical staff rush to save the young girl's life, They manage to resuscitate her, but she's in coma. Barbara survives the night, but dies the next day. The death, incredibly, is not reported to the medical examiner, but the hospital performs an autopsy. The conclusion is that Barbara fell victim to what, at the time, was a looming threat to children everywhere. The dreaded, and yet to be fully understood to this day, Ray Syndrome, which claimed the lives of many young children before it was found that the use of aspirin to treat fever was the main culprit. I'm clearly no doctor, but eventually the salicylate and aspirin was found to have provoked Rays in 90% of cases. Rates of death from Rays, which attacks the brain and liver, dropped dramatically after the aspirin connection was made. For Quite some time, both Joey and Barbara's deaths were thought to be as a result of Rays. Later, when the knowledge that Mary Beth Tenning had a hand in the deaths of at least some of her children, one medical expert close to the case, who came to suspect that Joey and Barbara were smothered, most likely with a pillow had this to say about Barbara's death. Quote, She may have been mildly ill to begin with, probably with something like a feverish cold. If there was an attempt to smother her, even a sick child of that age would not die quietly. She would have fought back and gained some consciousness. If the attempt continued, she would have had anoxic convulsions, then gone into coma. End quote. The chief pathologist of Ellis Hospital was also quoted on this case. This is what he had to say, looking back quote at the autopsy we found fatty changes in the liver and an edematous brain these changes seemed consistent with what we knew about Ray's syndrome at that time but we now know that these changes in rays are somewhat different than those found in barbara when she died no one thought of suffocation as a possibility we now know that the anoxia caused by suffocation will produce a fatty liver we did not know it then we knew that Ray's syndrome starts with nausea vomiting and Is followed by convulsions, liver failure, coma, and death, and in our ignorance of this new disease, we thought that's what we saw in Barbara. End quote. Mary Beth is under zero suspicion by authorities for having played a part in the deaths of now three of her children, the reason for this being that nobody reported a concern to child services or the police. To this point, a medical examiner had yet to take part in any of the autopsy procedures. This was a time before it was acceptable to be suspicious of a parent's impact on the lives of the children. No doctor in their right mind would even voice such a concern without clear proof, as to do so would likely get them sued. There were certainly suspicions amongst the nurses at Ellis Hospital and those who lived near the Tinnings. Family and friends felt uneasy about Mary Beth's behavior at the funerals for her children. She seemed to enjoy the attention. The party she held at her home after each death felt too casual. Mary Beth's home was devoid of any evidence that children had ever lived there. It had become her ritual to wash her most recently deceased child's clothes, then fold them and pack them away, along with any other belongings such as toys, and have them sent off to charity almost immediately after her child's death, effectively erasing any tangible memory of them from existence. When Easter morning arrived a month after Barbara's untimely death, Marybeth claims to have discovered two brightly colored baskets on her front porch full of treats. Somebody was letting her know that her children should still be living, and had placed the baskets on the porch, not as a tribute, but as a haunting reminder. Mary Beth took the hint. She informed Joe that they were moving. Joe soon found a new home for them in a nearby neighborhood of Schenectady that was just far enough away from the sting of local memory for the Tinnings to begin a new chapter of their lives, without having to suffer the suspicious looks that were being cast their way. Every time, they left the house. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I wanna be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. All right, everybody, Zipix Toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix Nicotine Toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix Toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, (laughs) uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks, if you're not a nicotine user, or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix Nicotine Infused Toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape and get some nicotine infused toothpicks at ZipixToothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DarkTopic at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zipmore smoke less with Zipix, nicotine toothpicks. The new tinning home was deathly silent. Marybeth escaped it often to spend her afternoons staring off into space at a local diner named Flavorland, soaking up pity from the kind staff there while Joe dove into his career in an attempt to hide from the reality of what had become of his family. The first three months of 1972 had taken his first three children. I assure you that if I were Joe Tinning, and I know I'm not alone in this, I'd be taking my chances and exiting this world in the hopes of there being another, or maybe I could catch up to my kids and help smooth their transition. Instead, only a few months removed from the graveside of their five-year-old daughter, two-year-old son, and weak-old baby, the Tinnings are applying to become foster parents, and by the fall of '72. A young boy named Robert is a fixture in and around the Tinnings' new home. Neighbors lavish praise on Mary Beth for her kind heart, and now suddenly it's as if the clouds have parted. Things improve even more for Mary when she gains part-time employment as a waitress at her favorite hangout, Flavorland, and soon it's as if life is good again. A remarkable turnaround. But there are cracks in the facade. Mary Beth, in an attempt to improve her dowdy appearance for work, shaves off her eyebrows and pencils in different designs depending on her mood. One day, she's maybe feeling as though her stock is rising, so she paints a couple of zigzags that start low on her brow and end high on her forehead, earning herself the reputation from customers as the waitress with the eyebrows. She dyes her hair wild colors, paints bright lipstick around her thin lips in an attempt to make them look fuller. The result is ghoulish. Customers giggle as they order. Fellow waitresses begin to step in for Mary Beth with especially rude clientele. They know Mary Beth's past and feel protective. Mary begins coming to work wearing maternity dresses. She tells customers that she's pregnant, which is a lie, and everybody knows it. But the humor the obviously fragile, if not already broken, 30-year-old, the tennings lose their foster child to adoption and take on a 10-year-old girl. Joe, who has been showing some obvious signs of missing his kids, especially their first child, Barbara, welcomes the little girl in with rare exuberance. It's been said that up until this point, Joe was consistently calling his niece Barbara, apparently unaware he was doing so and no one had the heart to correct him. Mary Beth and Joe were clearly traumatized, but the cure in 1972 for such an ailment was to crack a beer or pop a pill and move forward. So they do. Joe could almost without fail be found in front of a television during his time off, beer in hand, even when company was over. His sister-in-law Carol, who was maybe the only almost hero in this story, shared that you could turn that TV off and Joe would just keep on looking at it, as if the images were still bouncing before him. Incredibly, as the calendar turns to her off visited year of 1973, Mary Beth legitimately becomes pregnant. Almost as soon as she confirms that she is so, with a doctor from just outside of Schenectady, as she feels uncomfortable around her previous doctors, understandably, Mary Beth sends her foster child back to social services and withdraws from the foster care program. She's ready, nine months since her last child's death, the time it takes to grow a baby, coincidentally, to jump back into the circle of death. Timothy Tinning is born November twenty first, 1973. He weighs just over five pounds, and the medical professionals at Bellevue Hospital, who have no awareness of Mary Beth's track record due to the lack of a computer system, allowed the adamant mother to take her feeble and John's child home after 48 hours. Carol, the sister-in-law I mentioned, stays close to the baby. She tries to keep present as something doesn't sit well with her about her sister-in-law, Mary Beth. There have been a few warning signs that Carol can't ignore, besides the fact that Mary Beth's first children are all dead, Two foster children have come and gone, and Mary Beth's eyebrows are all over the fucking place like a Richter scale that measures instability, Carol has discovered that Mary Beth is a compulsive liar and wonders just how far the lies actually go. She's already caught her stealing money from her purse and suspects that her 12-year-old son Joel, who suffers from cerebral palsy and wears leg braces, was used by Mary Beth to gain sympathy on a trip to the mall. Mary Beth offered to take Joel shopping one day and return with a story that three strangers came out to her, praising her for bringing the boy out and about. Carol, in all her 12 years of time spent in public with her son, had never had a stranger come up to her and say such things. It was clear to her after this incident that Mary Beth did nothing in the interest of others. Everything in the end concerning Mary Beth was about Mary Beth. Unfortunately, as Carol feared, her brand new nephew, who she felt looked so much like her husband, has rushed into Ellis Hospital three weeks into life, dead. Mary Beth, who, as with her other deceased children was alone with Timothy when she found him lifeless in his crib, draws no scrutiny from the doctor who accepts the dead child into his arms for inspection. An autopsy is performed, and the cause of death is confirmed to be sudden infant death syndrome. Tiny Tim simply stopped breathing, his body, for whatever reason, failing to spontaneously draw breath while sleeping. At least, that's what the official record showed. A quote from Sister-in-law Carol regarding the funeral of three-week-old Timothy. Quote, Mary Beth was dry-eyed, without even a trace of sadness. I believe Joe felt something, but he didn't show it. We were talking about the fourth child, dead, and there was Mary Beth calmly putting a little toy in his coffin before they closed it. Most women would have jumped off the bridge, but all the attention was on her, and she seemed to be enjoying it. When we got back to her home after the funeral, she was going around quite calmly, making sure everyone had something to eat. It was like party time. I went to the bathroom and could not stop crying. Andy family there and i told him that something was very wrong with his family everybody seemed so happy and no one was dealing with the fact that this baby had died so we left and that was the end of timothy end quote a year and a quarter passes before mary beth dares to become pregnant again she's been advised not to have any more children as she may carry what one optimistic medical professional surmises to be a death gene that mary beth and joe are creating somehow and implanting into their kids it has to be clear to the ever dutiful husband joe that his wife is nuts his religion apparently prevents him from fully forming any real judgment of the woman he took for better for worse so this episode unfortunately must continue 1974 was full of crazy in the tinning home mary beth had started spending at an alarming rate joe began hiding his checkbook and stowing away cash to ensure the bills got paid despite his concerns about mary's spending He handed over treasury duties to her for his bowling league. Likely not his idea, but Joe, as we know, is a spineless character hiding behind his vows. Sure enough, not long after Mary Beth had become entrusted with a couple of hundred dollars, the money went missing. Mary claimed she had left the house to run some errands and returned to find her home ransacked. Furniture was turned on its side. Drawers hung open. The contents of the fridge had been yanked down and tossed about the kitchen floor. A fish tank was tipped over, making the scene look less like a burglary and more like a Bigfoot crossing zone. Investigators, after interviewing the complainant, decided almost immediately to drop the case. Here's a quote from the report regarding this incident. Quote, Officer came to the conclusion that the woman was mentally unstable and that there was a possibility she may have done this herself. The tinning marriage was under strain. Joe was at a loss. He couldn't get through to his wife that she needed to stop spending their money. Mary Beth reacted to this pressure in the only way she knew how. She stole a pill bottle full of phenobarbital from her sister-in-law that was prescribed to her son Joey, who Mary so kindly had offered to strut around the mall on occasion and laced Joe's grape juice with a lethal dose of it. Joe downed the concoction, apparently not noticing a difference in taste, and later, in the dead of night, around 3 a.m., Joe's brother and sister-in-law Carol receive a frantic phone call from Mary Beth. "'Joe's dead!' Mary Beth screamed for the receiver. Carol, who had answered, tried to get Mary to elaborate. What'd she mean? How'd he die? What's going on? Where are you? Mary Beth just blubbered an incoherent explanation that at most explained she was at home, and Joe was dead. Carol finally gave up trying to understand, screaming back at Mary that they'd be right over. When they arrive at the tinning home, they find Mary Beth fully dressed as if ready to head her to the hospital. She's repeating over and over again, quote, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, the frantic couple head to the master bedroom where Joe's laying on the floor. The bedsheets wrapped around him like apparently more than one of his dead children have been found in the past. His face, reminiscent of said deceased kin, is blue. juice is splashed about the room. Carol asks Mary Beth as she's called for help. Mary Beth responds that they are the help. Carol can't believe her ears. An ambulance is promptly called and Joe is rushed to Ellis Hospital where, unlike his buried offspring, the medical staff are able to revive him. Once Joe is stable, he's questioned as to how he came to be saturated with an incredible dose of phenobarbital. Mary Beth, who, while Joe's been crawling back from the brink of death, has suggested that Joe attempted suicide, looks pleadingly at her husband. Joe solemnly goes along with his beloved's claim, till death do them part. It's a wonder that Joe Tinning's face does not appear after googling the definition of an enabler. Sister-in-law Carol can't hold her tongue. At a small family get-together soon after this incident, she corners Mary Beth and lets her know that she's sick of her lies. She forces Mary to admit that she's stolen from her, used her son as a means of garnering attention, attempts to kill Joe, and is a candidate for the mental ward due to the trauma she suffered as a result of losing so many children. Mary Beth buckles and agrees to go into treatment. Carol wastes no time. Along with her husband and Mr. Hands off Joe Tinning, they drive Mary Beth to the hospital where they take the necessary steps to have her admitted. When Mary Beth is called into a back office for private counsel, her escorts stay to see it out in the waiting room. Soon, a doctor appears, asking where the prospective patient is. Mary Beth has given them the slip. She's exited the building and ferried a ride home with her mother-in-law, who, like Joe, always believed that Mary Beth was a victim of bad luck and a work in progress that the Lord had yet to put the finishing touches on. Mary Beth is soon pregnant again. Her fellow waitresses at Flavorland are stunned when a true baby bump begins to appear on their co-worker, who by now has become a kind of local celebrity. Everyone whispers that Mary Beth has been killing her kids, that she attempted to kill her husband, but got away with it due to Joe's supernatural commitment to his wife. By this point, many of the customers who roll through Flavorland are there not only to have a bite, but to catch a glimpse of the focal character of a real-life horror soap that's playing out in Schenectady. One of Mary's co-workers decides to embrace the obvious condition of Mary Beth and seeks her out in the break room. Mary, who could almost always on break, be found sipping a tea and reading Stephen King or for the umpteenth time be observed poring over the novel Where Are the Children, a fiction written by Mary Higgins Clark that follows the arc of a sensational story where a woman is accused of killing her two children. The co-worker related claim that when she approached Mary Beth with her congratulations, she was met with a glazed look, followed by an incredible admission. Mary Beth allegedly brings her thin lips to her fellow waitress's ear and says, God told me to kill this one too. She then casually sits down with her novel and retreats to her intent reading. The co-worker doesn't speak a word of this until much later, believing at the time that Mary Beth was being facetious. Nathan Tinning is born March 30th, 1975, Easter Sunday of that year. Fellow waitresses reluctantly react in a positive manner to Mary Beth, who seemed doubtful that this, her fifth child, would go on to live a healthy and full life. Then why continue having babies? One waitress blurts, unable to help herself. This is a fair question, and one just about everyone has been withholding. Mary Beth is nonplussed. She responds firmly and with conviction. Quote, because I'm a woman, and that's what women do. After five months of intermittent visits to the restaurant, where Mary proudly displayed her healthy baby boy, the waitresses of Flavorland, who are growing attached to Nathan, are blindsided. Mary Beth swings open the front doors in a panic, screaming for assistance one day. The manager rushes out to Mary's vehicle, where baby Nathan sits slumped, blue in the face, and unresponsive in his car seat. The manager unbelts the baby and places him on the hood of the car, where he begins to perform CPR. An ambulance soon arrives, and Nathan is swept off to St. Clair's Hospital. Ellis Hospital is spared, maybe by design. Marybeth is driven out of its range. Even she's likely incredulous that four children and one husband brought near death or dead to one location hasn't provoked clear suspicion. Panic questions fly her way about Nathan's condition, and she takes the time between wet sobs to explain that she'd been at a vegetable stand when she returned to the car to find her baby making strained, gurgling noises. When asked why she drove to Flavorland and not the hospital, Marybeth answers that she panicked. When she's later questioned as to why the baby was without its apnea device, a preventative measure put in place considering the tinning children's history of dying unexpectedly, the device was fitted with an alarm that would trigger if there was a lapse of breathing, Mary Beth replies that she couldn't bring it with her in the car as it was too cumbersome. But all that is neither here or there. A baby's life hangs in the balance, a life that is found to have basically been extinguished by the time paramedics reach the hospital. Nathan is still alive, but brain dead. He dies three days later. The waitresses of Flavorland would later mutter to each other about the look on Mary Beth's face throughout the horrific incident. Mary Beth should have been entirely focused on her baby, but someone noticed that she appeared to be soaking up the reaction of her co-workers. At least one waitress claimed that the dawn of a smile was clearly emerging from Mary Beth's lips as they locked eyes. The smirk fled from the mouth in reaction to this contact, but immediately appeared to bloom in Mary's completely odd and inappropriately fixed stare. going to act as though i'm stringing you along here mary beth has been killing her kids in the end she will admit to three one of them being the boy just mentioned nathan who she placed a pillow over his face apparently as they were driving until he quit breathing it's hard to tell what's what with mary beth she was always alone with these kids when they passed away some believe she actually killed nathan in the house placed him in the car seat dead then drove to Flavorland, taking the car ride as a reason to have not had the sleep apnea machine on him. It's widely believed that Mary Beth killed eight of her eventual nine children, one of whom was adopted, and we'll get to him in a moment. It has been deduced that Mary suffocated her children, likely by pressing a pillow over the face while they slept. This was a time where doctors were certainly aware that mothers were capable of killing their babies, but they were more likely to become suspicious of a disheveled-looking client than someone like Mary Beth, who usually entered the eMERGE cradling a limp child looking made up and dressed for church. The first of her children to die, Jennifer, who may have inadvertently had her doom initiated by the hand of her mother as well, if the self-induced labor theory is to be believed, and I do believe it, this likely set off... The horrific chain of events as Mary Beth, for the first time, received the attention, pity, and love she craved so much from her recently deceased father. Munchausen syndrome is a recognized mental disorder where a person repeatedly fakes illness and a ploy to garner attention. Our friend Shore shared his brush with it in the beginning, as I'm sure you recall. What we are exposing ourselves to here is a prime example of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. I have trouble accepting that this is even a thing, but nothing should surprise us at this point. There are people in this world who will intentionally make their child or someone entrusted to their care sick by poison or by withholding medication. They do this to inevitably lap up the spoils of praise produced by peers in reaction to the selfless attempts to cure and care for their charge. Marybeth Tinning is the poster child for Munchausen by proxy. The system failed to recognize what was occurring because it had never dealt with such a human being. Unfortunately for her children, they will forever be the example of what can happen. When we believe our ears, trust our eyes, and ignore the pit of our stomachs. It'll be three years before Mary Beth, who is 35 years old in 1978, gets the itch to become a mother again. The precipitating factor in this risky decision being the announcement that her sister and brother-in-law have decided to adopt. Mary can't handle the attention this new child begins receiving, so she enters the adoption process herself. Mary has to take a shady route in order to procure a baby. Because of her extensive history of children dying on her watch, whether it be as a result of a so-called death gene or not, her credit has been ruined when it comes to adoption. The cost is $5,000, and the child comes to her possession via a so-called baby broker. This process involved a lawyer and a doctor or someone posing as a doctor who would convince a woman in search of an abortion to have the child and sign rights to the baby over to their client. This child, Michael, enters the tinning fold on August third, 1978, a little under three months later, Mary Beth stuns everyone familiar with her history by entering an emergency room in labor. After a three year hiatus, Mary Beth is back in the motherhood game. Two children come into her possession in a quarter of a year's span. She places the babies down in front of her extended family like a pair of aces. Friends and family, of course, welcome these fresh faces in with open arms. Michael is clearly of some African American ancestry, but Mary tries to convince people he's Italian. When it becomes obvious that Michael isn't Italian, Mary Beth stops bringing him out to show him off, making her even less likable at this point somehow. Her newest daughter, Mary Frances, makes the rounds of the restaurant Flavorland. One account from a waitress tells of a moment where Mary Beth placed the baby girl on a counter and became distracted talking. Mary Frances was rescued by a heads up play from a patron, but this goes to show where Mary Beth's head was most of the time up her own ass. It doesn't take long before Mary Beth is rushing Mary Frances into the emergency room. Three months thereabouts. She claims to have discovered her unconscious in her crib. Staff are able to revive Mary Frances and the incident is officially chalked up to be a case of sudden infant death syndrome that was aborted due to the quick action of Mary Beth. The doctor who takes Mary Frances on as his patient is completely impressed by her doting mother. It's his impression that he's dealing with a medical mystery and makes it his mission to get to the bottom of it. Mary Frances is sent for extensive testing and monitored closely over the next couple of weeks. Mary Beth holds constant vigil. The nurses have their theories about this regular customer. One even voices concern to the doctor, who shushes her immediately. There are a few nurses who even refuse to work with the little girl as they can't stand to be around the mother. Social services responds to a complaint, but are quickly off the scent after the doctor vouches for Mary Beth. It's not long before Mary Frances is discharged, and it's even less time before she returns. Lifeless in Mary Beth's arms, exactly a month since the previous emergency. Mary Frances is revived, but this time she's too far gone. She's brain dead. Mary Beth refuses to give the okay to pull the plug in her baby, but eventually, after the whole situation is dragged out to a completely unnecessary length, she dramatically gives the okay to let four month old Mary Frances go. The majority of healthcare professionals who dealt with Mary Beth were left with the impression of her being a caring, concerned mother. She was there with each child till death, sleeping in waiting rooms, pestering nurses for updates, always present, concerned, engaged, besides the fact that she could never make eye contact. What they failed to realize was that they weren't witnessing a mother bird refusing to abandon a fallen egg. Rather, they were in the presence of a vulture that was sticking around to collect as much sustenance as it possibly could. Mary Beth resisted having the plug pulled on Mary Frances, not because she couldn't bear losing her daughter, but because she wasn't ready to stop feeding off of the delicious pity her brain-dead baby was attracting for. Mary Beth steps into her ritual. She washes folds and stacks her baby's clothes, gathers her toys, and gives it all away. She stands next to the open casket, collecting tears and empathy as payment for the hit. Mary Frances is then lowered into a grave that neighbors that of five deceased siblings. This is a sight that Joe, Mary, and their adopted son Michael will visit often. Joe to mourn, Michael to obliviously play, and Mary Beth to admire her handiwork. Michael, you would think, is safe under the care of sinning Mary Beth Tinning, as being an adopted child keeps him out of contention for falling victim to the so-called death gene. He's not safe, however, from pure negligence. When it's discovered that Michael is suffering from a hernia, surgery is decided to be necessary. The doctor strongly suggests Michael be subjected to a blood test for sickle cell anemia, a congenital disease that affects predominantly African Americans and could cause Michael's blood to clot during surgery. The doctor wants to be prepared for this anomaly, but Mary Beth refuses the test. She's adamant that her child is Italian, willing to risk Michael's life in defense of her racist stance. The surgery is a success, but here is yet another example of Mary Beth's selfish motivations when it came to her kids. Forgive me if I sound tired as I say this, but soon Mary Beth is pregnant again. I'm not bored or disinterested, just beaten down by the stupidity and ineptitude surrounding this case. Jonathan Tenning is born, November 19, 1979. The math on this birth date points to him having been conceived in close relation to the death of Mary Frances. Four months into life, Jonathan Tenning is rushed into the hospital near death. He's revived... And on this occasion, doctors are adamant that Jonathan stay in the hospital's care until they can get to the bottom of this shit. The situation is deemed so serious that the National Guard is commissioned to fly Jonathan to Boston for extensive genetic testing. Jonathan is found to be healthy. If there's an issue, it's beyond the scope of genetics at the time. One doctor describes young Jonathan as being, quote, as wiggly and active a child as you can imagine. Jonathan is sent home with strict orders to sleep with an apnea monitor. Three days later, Jonathan is brain dead. It all goes down in the same fashion I've described over and over again here. Jonathan is sent to a larger hospital in Albany, New York, where he's kept on life support and tests are running him for a month. A month until he passes away. It's been almost exactly a year since the identical situation happened with Mary Francis. A quote from an Albany doctor here who treated Jonathan once it was too late, this time about the reasons why no suspicions were directly laid upon Mary Beth in this case. Quote, before we saw Jonathan, there were intensive efforts to resuscitate him. Those would cover up any signs of suffocation which might or might not exist. When a child comes into an emergency room in the state Jonathan was in, doctors don't stop to look for cause. They concentrate on trying to revive him. End quote. Shortly after Jonathan is lullabied away to his mother's recitation of the Lord's Prayer, performed graveside as per her ritual with all of her dead children, Michael, Mary Beth's adopted son, who has managed to escape the tinning child curse, falls down the back steps playing superman the injury to his head from the fall is minor yet marybeth bursts into the emergency room as she's grown accustomed to doing displaying the same type of panic she'd shown when hustling in her nearly dead children michael is bandaged up and sent home marybeth paces and shakes throughout the visit optimistic medical staff comment that marybeth is likely traumatized from the intensity of previous visits the large group of pessimists however whisper to each other how ridiculous the whole display had been Mary Beth likely felt how unwelcome she'd been at the hospital. By this point, she can go nowhere without being recognized as a lady with all the dead children. Like I would said, Mary Beth's life had become like a soap opera for most local residents, and the nurses, some who had witnessed Mary enter the emergency room with a dying child half a dozen times or more, weren't shy about sharing their feelings about Mary Beth to friends and family. This sudden uncomfortability may be why Mary Beth chose to take now two-and-a-half-year-old Michael to a doctor's office across town rather than the emerge when she claimed to have found him unconscious one morning, soon after his fall. The doctor's office she chooses is the home base of her most supportive doctor to this point. She waits out front until the doors unlock around 10 a.m., then enters the building, carrying Michael in her arms. Here's a quote from the lone nurse who was in the office that day, preparing for the usual rush that comes after a weekend. Quote, it was about 9.45 a.m. and I was alone in the little back room where I had all the allergy shots. I heard the front door of the house open and I went around and saw Mary Beth standing there with her child wrapped in a blanket. She was yelling, we need help. Until this moment, I had never suspected her of having anything to do with her baby's death. But when I saw who it was, I wanted to run at the back door. It was the only time in my entire nursing career that I have wanted to run. If it had been any other patient... I would not have felt that way, but I knew something was terribly wrong. I laid Michael on a little wooden bench where the children usually sit, and as soon as I did this, Mary Beth began started running all over the place, wringing her hands and yelling hysterically. I knew what I would find before I unwrapped the blanket. Michael was dead. The floodgates open in regards to public scrutiny of the tinning family after this. Nobody can hold their tongue. It's clear to everyone that this soap opera is over. The star of the show has looked into the camera and winked. Michael was adopted. How in the world? What are the odds? Police, children's services, doctors, nurses, all wait impatiently as an autopsy is performed on Michael. Criminal tip hotlines are overrun with concerns. The public is demanding that this madness be stopped. Finally, the results are in. It's been determined that Michael has died from pneumonia. A small patch of it has been found in his lung. Examiners do suspect that the actual cause could be suffocation, but... Because of the pneumonia present, they don't risk jumping to that conclusion. Joe and Mary Beth are basically running of Schenectady with torches and pitchforks. They settle back in Dwaynesburg, their hometown, for a while until things cool off. In a trailer they purchase, things actually heat up. It burns to the ground. Mary Beth is suspected of having set it on fire. Her behavior is curdling from odd to deranged. She manages to get work as a volunteer ambulance driver where her fabrications are becoming more and more unbelievable. One day she's delivering a baby at the mall. The next, performing CPR at a restaurant, she's losing her touch. In fact, her fellow volunteers begin dubbing the small details of her obvious lies the Mary Beth touch. I'm reminded of Ted Bundy in his later years, stumbling around discos, trolling for potential victims, being shunned by the women he so easily could win over in the beginning, pushing forward, making a fool of himself, unaware that his charm had faded the monster within not so contained anymore. The attention Mary Beth had absorbed like a life force from the deaths of her children wasn't available anymore. She was addicted to this attention, but with Michael's death had been left with no choice but to quit cold turkey, as one more slip would surely mean the end for her. Mary Beth's behavior during this withdrawal process was similar to that of a junkie's. There are stories of her dropping plates or spilling food and breaking down as if her world had ended, all while her spineless husband Joe... "'Scurry to get a cloth or broom, no doubt. "'After a couple of years back home, "'the Tennings decide to slink back to Schenectady, New York. "'They move into a neighborhood without memory "'of the eight lost Tenning children, "'and Marybeth takes on work as a bus driver. "'Her tenure with the ambulance service "'had come to an abrupt halt when she'd been suspected "'of stealing a resuscitation dummy and other supplies. "'This reminds me of a detail I may have missed thus far. "'Marybeth had training in CPR from her time as a nurse's aide "'before she bore any children.' Not once did she attempt to use this skill over the multiple occasions in which she allegedly found her kids lifeless. She'd been questioned at times as to why this was. Her answer was always the same. She'd been in shock. She panicked. At the age of 42, Mary Beth decides to try for another child. I don't think I need to comment on this much. Let's just get it over with. Tammy Lynn Tinning is born on August 22, 1985. Her bedroom is set up at the other end of the house for Mary Beth and Joe, so far from their room that Tammy Lynn's cries would have been difficult to pick up if fast asleep. To a new friend of the Tinnings, a neighbor who had recently had a child of her own, the setup seemed dysfunctional. There was a room right beside the master bedroom. Why not use that as a nursery? The answer? Oh, it's full of Joe's stuff. This new friend found a lot of things strange about Mary Beth's care of her beautiful new baby. For one... The formula Mary prepared would sit out on the counter all day. When asked why it wasn't in the fridge, Mary Beth's answer was that the baby liked it room temperature. Mary had shared that she'd had children and that they'd passed due to her hereditary disease of some sort. So this new acquaintance was confused as to why Mary Beth wasn't aware that formula should be kept cool once placed in bottles. Besides unsanitary conditions that went beyond formula, this neighbor made another disturbing observation which gives us some deeper insight into Mary Beth's game. Tammy Lynn was always dressed well, like a doll. All of Marybeth's children have been dressed well. She spared no expenses, any time, but when it came to the appearance of her children, she went all out. This new friend of Beth's offered to change Tammy Lynn's diapers one day and discovered that underneath all the fancy veneer lay evidence of neglect. The baby had a furious diaper rash. All the time Marybeth spent on appearances left her little time to take care of what really mattered, the comfort and safety of her children. On the evening of December 20th, following an afternoon of Christmas shopping that saw Mary Beth spend a ridiculous sum on her four-month-old daughter, the inevitable happened. I will share with you the actual events, and then we'll get out of here. This version is considered to be true. It was given as part of a confession from Mary Beth Tinning, who was finally investigated after this. Her ninth child is brought lifeless to the emergency room, her doting husband in tow, apparently bewildered as to how this could happen for the ninth time. Us too, Joe. Bewildered doesn't do it justice. Gobsmacked, appalled, stupefied, flabbergasted. None of them work. To concisely pin down how people feel about what your wife was up to all those years as you stood stoically by her side, holding true to the commitment you pledged before God. Here is how their ninth child died, their final one, mercifully. Joe Tinning arrives home from bowling around 11 p.m. He and Marybeth chat for a while before he falls asleep. Apparently he had a drink while out, Joe's drink of choice, the black velvet press, scotch, club soda, spray of ginger ale. The cocktail was certain to help him sleep like a baby. Speaking of babies, one begins to cry loud enough for its mother to hear it all the way across the house, and at about midnight, Marybeth finally gets up to see what the fuss is about. She tries to calm Tammy Lynn down, but to no avail. I hear you, Mary Beth. I I got a baby about the same age. Doesn't have a diaper rash or a crib at a earshot, but he can still be quite fussy. Picking him up helps. He likes songs. Sometimes his diaper's wet. There are times when he's just spooked and you need to bounce him around for a bit, making funny faces at him. But that's what we signed up for, am I right, Mary? Mary Beth? Mary Beth is staring at her daughter's window as the cries begin to vibrate the water that's pooling in her deadly stare. Methodically, and with a practiced angle, Marybeth brings her pillow down over Tammy Lynn's wailing face, muffling the squawks, holding just enough pressure to ensure the air is sparse enough that the four-month-old can't breathe. Tammy Lynn eventually falls still. She's dead, or at least suffocated to a point where every moment that now passes is vital, and staving off brain death. Marybeth then heads to the living room where she considers what to do next. She decides to put the pillow at the end of the couch to make it look as if she'd been sleeping there. Her initial story is that Joe was tossing and turning, so that's why she was out of bed. Next comes the Marybeth touch. She crumples and positions the pillow to make it look as if she'd just pulled her head from it and gone to check on the baby, who she finds tangled in the bed sheets and unresponsive, a spot of blood on the mattress. Her reason for the fabrication of a story being, why would she get up from bed to check on a baby that's not making any noise? These are the details, and you can most certainly... See the devil. In it. Dark Topic is an eleven fifty-nine media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash Dark Topic Pod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. All right.